Well, as I mentioned there at the very beginning, this is my seventh year here. I came here seven years ago and asked to speak on lessons to learn from 18th, 19th, and 20th century evangelists, and I thought that was it. But uh, obviously I didn't do good enough, so they brought me back the next year, and here I am seven years later. But I've been given the free reign to speak on whatever I want to do in relation to evangelism and evangelists. So I've chosen three totally unrelated subjects, other than the fact that they're all related to evangelism. You may never have heard of Raymond Lull, but you need to hear about Raymond Lull. And we're going to look at him on, uh, on Wednesday. And maybe you've never heard of the Edinburgh Missionary Conference that took place in 1910 that was going to change the world of evangelism for years. But you've probably never heard of it. What went wrong? So we're going to have a look at that. But I want to start with Christmas Evans. When I was in school, my, my peers were buying records of groups like Status Quo, The Kinks, Cream. As a 15-year-old boy, I went out and bought this record, and then I realized I was different. <laughs> it's a record of a Christmas Evans sermon being read in Welsh by a man called Jubilee Young. So I listened to that as a teenager, and I hadn't a clue what it was about because it was in Welsh. <laughs> but then amazingly, I married a Welsh girl who speaks the language. And then after I got married, I got chatting to my mother-in-law one day, and she said, oh, my mother used to travel miles to hear Jubilee Young preach. I said, stop, Jubilee Young? The preacher? Yes. Where did she go to? Oh, she went up to uh, up the valleys to Triorki. Wow. She heard Jubilee Young. I've got him on a record. I then discovered that Jubilee Young was pastor of Capel Romva, just outside Pont de Prive. Blow me down. I preached there. And if you go to the chapel on the outside, there's a plaque in honor of John Hughes to say, John Hughes, the author of Come Romva, it was here the hymn tune was first heard in public. Amazing. When I was working for the National Trust, I lived in Welshpool. I lived in a cottage that was falling down, and it was part of a row of cottages that were all empty. And it was quite, quite eerie as a 19-year-old boy living in this house all on your own. And uh, mm, fascinating. What can you do? There was, there was no gas. The electricity was on and off. The water was pretty poor. What could you do? So I used to work as much overtime as possible to try and get away from the place. But amazingly, there was a book in the cottage. It was the biography of Christmas Evans, written by a man called Paxton Hood. So every evening when I came home from Powys Castle, where I was working, I would sit down and read my way through the life story of, of Christmas Evans. I was transfixed. Wow. Little did I realize that five years almost to the day that I would be standing in his pulpit in Cardiff where he was minister for 30 months, being valedicted into the Christian ministry. Wow. And then eventually I found myself pastoring a church in Swansea. Well, where did Christmas Evans die? Well, he died in Swansea behind the railway station. But the railway station wasn't there then, so he was there before the railway station. So that's where he's buried. And the number of preachers who would come and preach to me, I would say, let me show you before you get on the train where Christmas Evans is buried. I actually had the privilege, not many people have this privilege, I actually took R.T. Kendall to his grave. But he wasn't too convinced. But anyway, I know the real story. He is buried 
there. I want to speak about Christmas Evans for the next uh, 50 or so minutes. I guess we all know people who've got Christmas as maybe their, their surname. There are one or two well-known Christmases, Art Christmas, David Christmas. Those of you who are James Bond fans will know that there's a Dr. Christmas. I only know of one person who has Christmas as his middle name, D. Christmas Williams. But Christmas as your first name? Why? Look, it's obvious. He was born on Easter Sunday. <laughs> no, he was born on Christmas Day. And uh, as have many people been born on Christmas Day, Isaac Newton, Humphrey Bogart, but were straying from the realm of evangelism. Christmas Evans was known for having a very vivid, sanctified imagination. When he preached, he put eyes into people's ears. And I find that a challenge as I preach week after week after week, and I've done so for the past 40 odd years. David, when you get into the pulpit, put eyes into people's ears. That, that as you preach, people can see what you're talking about. And that's exactly what Christmas Evans did. And he's been described as a Paul in labor, an abundant in imagination, and a George Whitfield in eloquence. No wonder he's probably the greatest preacher, uh, maybe outside of Daniel Rowland, that Wales has ever produced. It's 200 years since he died. You say, what on earth am I doing looking at a man who lived 200 years ago? What relevance is that to me? Believe me, by the time we finish, you'll say, wow, he could fit in here. He's one of us. He was born in 1766 to a couple who were incredibly poor. His father was a shoemaker. And they had three children, and Christmas was one of them. Sadly, when Christmas was nine, his, his father died. And his mother was stuck with three children, but no income. So the only thing she could do was to try and farm out the children. So she said to Christmas, I'm sending you to my brother. And so he was sent to her brother to go and live and work on the farm. The trouble is, his brother didn't, the brother didn't want him. And he was a kind of typical person in those days. You know, drank, swore, cursed, was violent. He said, Christmas, you can come work with me on the farm, but you're not sleeping in the house, you're sleeping in the barn. And so for four years, this 9 to 13-year-old boy slept with cows every night. When he got to the age of 13, he was so tired of this. He said, there's got to be more to life than this. I'm getting away from my uncle. I'm going to go looking for work elsewhere. So he did. So he went from farm to farm looking for work, but still sleeping in people's barns. At 17, he'd had enough. He said, I must go to the promised land. I must go to England. Maybe they'll treat me better. And so at the age of 17, Christmas Evans crossed the border, and he came into England. He hadn't been here five minutes when a group of English youths set on him. They so thumped him and mugged him that one thump took out his eye. Hence the reason why he's known as the one-eyed preacher of Wales. And he just had one eye. And forgive me for saying this, but there was no surgery in those days, like we know it today. And neither were painkillers the kind of things that we have today. And often when he preached, his eye wept. And here's this man. He was over six feet tall. He, he, was, he was gangly. He had a huge head. So much so that every hat he bought, he had to cut it to get it over his head. So here's this huge man preaching. But as he got passionate about Jesus, his eye began to weep. He was always wiping his eye. But people kind of forgot that because in their ears were eyes that enabled them to see the Lord Jesus. When he realized what the English were like, 
he came back to Wales and thought, well, let's give it a go. And so he came back to Wales and just carried on just looking for work and trying to live with nowhere really to live at all. One Sunday, for some strange reason, he drifted into a Presbyterian chapel. And for the first time in his life, he heard the gospel at 17. If truth were known, millions of people in our country have never heard the gospel once. So he he dressed into this chapel, said, what on earth is this? And there was a gentle move of the Spirit. A number of people were coming to faith in Christ through the preaching of the pastor, a man called David Davis. But he had a strange eccentricity. He preached with his eyes closed. Now generally it's the other way around, isn't it? The preacher preaches with his eyes open and you listen with your eyes closed. But he preached with his eyes closed because he had no notes and he was just thinking as he was preaching. The trouble is, whenever he kind of finished preaching, generally speaking, his congregation was thinned out. Because people thought, well, he won't know I've gone, so I'll just slip out. (laughs) So that's the kind of experience Christmas Evans came into. But the pastor saw potential in this young boy. One eye. Couldn't read, couldn't write. But he could speak the language. But he knew that something was there. He could see a diamond in the rough. And he said to Christmas, Christmas... If I give you time, will you give me time? And I'll teach you how to read. So he taught this, how humbling, a 17-year-old boy how to read. And within weeks, wow, he picked it up. He was so enthusiastic in his learning that the pastor then began to teach him English. And then Latin. And here's a boy who's hardly been to school all his life, spent more time with cows and people, He's now learning Latin and English. He can now write and and read in Welsh. Wow! What was the population of Wales in those days? Half a million people. And in those days, only one in ten people could read. Now you understand why he was a visible preacher. And uh, I'm sorry I've got no PowerPoint. I still believe, and I'm nothing against PowerPoint. Please don't read anything into that. But there's something powerful about putting eyes into people's ears as you preach. That people listen with their eyes wide open as you preach. That's, that's what this man had. There was a rule in the church where he attended in Llewyn Fridoin that no one could go into the pulpit unless they'd been to college. And so the pastor said, well, I'd love to put you in the pulpit, but I can't because it's chapel rules. You cannot get into the pulpit until you've been to college. But I'll I'll get around this. I'll organize a cottage meeting. So I advertise it, you preach. So here's here's this huge teenager bubbling with English and Latin and Welsh. Okay, never preached in his life. The cottage is packed out. He got up. He preached a sermon and a half. Wow. People were giving glory to God. Lord, you've sent a wonderful man. As they're walking home, the pastor said, Christmas, that was a wonderful sermon. I've got it at home in a book. He said, was that the sermon of Daniel Rowland you lifted? He said, yes, it was. Oh, how disappointing. But I'll tell you what, though. I'll give you credit. The prayer was out of this world. He said, Christmas, I hadn't the courage to tell him I'd lifted that from another book. (laughs) He said, but I admired your enthusiasm and your passion, so I'm going to keep giving you opportunities. And so here's a man 
within a couple of years of walking into a chapel one Sunday morning, his entire life is turned upside down. Is he a believer? Not yet. And sometimes we make the mistake of someone being awakened for salvation. He, he really wasn't saved. And uh, a surprising number of people who get into the kind of the Christian network and we push them, but really they don't fully understand what the gospel is. And uh, he was one of those kind of people. There were some terrific preachers around in Wales at that time, and one feels a little bit envious of some of the people he sat under. A man called David Morris of Tyr Gwyn, just outside Newcastle, Emberlin. Peter Williams, wow, what a preacher he was. The most important was, was David Jones Hlangan. See, how important was he? When Daniel Rowland died, he buried him and preached at his funeral. When the Countess of Huntingdon died, Salida, he also preached at her funeral as well. He was a mighty preacher. He came from just, just outside where my wife comes from. And, and when I used to go home and see my mother-in-law, he used to drive through a small village just outside Bridgend where once he stood up to preach and hundreds gathered and came to faith in Christ. He used to drive past the chapel door thinking, wow, how things have changed. How things have changed. And here's this man, new to the Christian world, hearing these giants in the pulpit. And he heard a special man called Robert Roberts of Kalanagvaur. If you ever go down the Hleen Peninsula, you blink and you're through the village. This man was so disabled, it said he couldn't even lift a chair. But when he got into the pulpit... He could lift the congregation to heaven. He was converted on the preaching of Daniel Rowland. And uh, through his preaching, John Elias became a believer. And Robert Roberts said to a young Christmas Evans, young man, when you go into the pulpit, preach with imagination. Boy, how we need that today. Preach with imagination. Friends, if all that we say is what the Bible says, but in a more boring fashion, we should be out in the pulpit. Because people can read it themselves. And furthermore, any Bible study that stops in the Bible is not a Bible study. Real Bible study puts on a pair of shoes and gets out of the Bible and walks real life. Christmas, preach with imagination. Boy, did he remember that. Then he saw the light. If there are any Presbyterians here, I apologize. Lord have mercy. He left the Presbyterians and he joined the Baptists. Hallelujah. <laughs> he ran into the Baptists and, and came off, off worse. In fact, he fell in the water. Uh, a man called Dr. Amos said, tell me about this baptizing babies Christmas that you do in the Presbyterians. Well, he tried to argue, but everything he said was undone by this Mr. Amos. In the end, he acknowledged that baptism by immersion for believers follows conversion. And so he became a Baptist. And so he jumped from the Presbyterians. By the way, it must have been a pain to the minister's heart, having, him taught, having told him to read and write in Welsh, told him Latin and English, give him his preaching opportunities, and then to see him go to the Baptists. Have we not been there ourselves, pastors, evangelists? You put so much time into somebody... And then suddenly you have this brainwave. There's more going on in the next church. Well, he joined the Baptist. He said to the minister there, a man called uh, Timothy Thomas, I'd like to get baptized. So he baptized him. And it was there that he really understood justification by faith. 
By the way, his pastor said at the end of his life he'd baptised 2,000 people. Let's be quite frank. We'd be quite happy with 200. 2,000. And he said, over 30 of those I've baptised have now gone into full-time Christian work. One, of course, being Christmas Evans. What is amazing is this. Even though he was converted, even though he was baptised, he lacked assurance, wouldn't you? At one level, you can understand everyone had put him down. You can imagine the English going, look at that ugly mug. Look at the language he speaks. What a stupid language. Let's hit him. The way his uncle treated him. And when his father died, he said, I had a fear of death. What is life if suddenly you are snatched away? What is life? And here's this man kind of really, really struggling with who he was, even though he'd become a Christian. He found preaching hard. And he thought, I know what the problem is. I'm sticking to my notes. Why don't I preach like my pastor back in Cludry Owen? So he did. And realized it's time I got back to notes. It's not working. Uh, Clarence McCartney once wrote a book, How to Preach Without Notes. Have you tried it? It's very hard. Kind of just open your mouth and the Lord will fill it. I generally find when that happens, he doesn't fill it. It's very, very hard. So he went back and he persevered. Suddenly, the Baptist Association heard, there's a good man. We need to get him in the ministry. And so they approached him and said, we feel that the call of God is upon you. We'd like to send you to North Wales. And we'd like to send you to the Thleen Peninsula, to a small chapel called Salem. Salem Tinoin. Just further south from from, from Kalanagvar. And he went. And when he went there, he was just 23 years of age. And he was sent to look after five churches. And how about this? Every Sunday, he preached to five different churches. Now, in these days of teen ministry, I know pastors who preach every three weeks, once. And it's kind of, get the prayer chain going, I'm going to preach. Here's a man preaching five times a Sunday, walking there and walking back. And uh, while he was concentrating on his preaching, there was a very attractive young girl in the congregation that he proposed to. And she liked his preaching and she liked him. And she married him. They were both 23. But she'd become a Christian before her. During his first year there, 50 folk professed faith in Christ. The second year, 80. But how about this? When people started to come to Christ through his preaching, he doubted them. He said, no, it wasn't through my servant, surely. He, he, felt, he felt wretched. Lord, you can't use me. Look at me. He couldn't carry on like this. And he tells us, one day, he just got off his horse. Someone had lent him a horse. And said, Lord, I can't carry on like this. This is, this is not life. You either fill me with the Holy Spirit or I quit the ministry. But I can't carry on living like this, feeling so wretched and so useless, yet folks saying becoming Christians. It's not right. He said, I wrestled with God until the Holy Spirit came down and soaked me with his presence. And I knew that was my calling. If he wanted to travel, he had to borrow a horse. That's how poor he was. In fact, he was poor virtually all of his life. So if he ever wanted to go anywhere, he had to walk. He had friends in South Wales. I better go and see them. I walked there. When news came in those days, a preacher was traveling through the area. We'll organize a meeting for you. And so wherever he went, people always organized an evening meeting. And so he often preached his way down to South Wales and back. By the way, during his life, he went there 40 times. 
he always preached twice on a Sunday and once when he was traveling on a weeknight. So generally speaking, he was preaching eight times a week. The Baptists in Anglesey, the Isle of Anglesey and Esmond, got to hear of this man and said, we'd like to call you to be our pastor. There are ten churches. We're not big. We can offer you 17 pounds, but no more. Would you come? And how interesting that Christmas Evans, with his wife on Christmas Day, both got on a horse and then rode all the way to the Menai Straits, crossed the Swellies, and then went to Llangevny. And that's where he spent most of his life. And you know something? For the first 20 years of his life, his pay was still £17 a year. The manse, the door was rotten. You could put your foot through it, the door into the manse. The floorboards were so weak that when he walked, they went up and down. And with a six-foot man in a small shed-like building, that was his home. And it was there that he prayed, he studied, he pastored, and it's there that he lived. He divided Anglesey into four and said, I will preach three times every Sunday in a different quarter to make sure that at least most Sundays, one quarter gets the preaching of God's word. He called all the Christians together. He said, I've heard there's been lots of squabbles and politics. If you think I've come from the clean peninsula with my wife to live in a place like this, to play silly politics with you, you can forget it. So I'm not going to preach to start with. We'll have times of prayer and fasting and seeking for God to come and sort us out. Then I'll preach and pastor you. But I'm not here to play church politics. Ooh. So he cleared the ground and everyone knew where he stood. It was in that house that he did all his studies. Oh, and by the way, he thought, it's time I learned a bit of Greek and Hebrew. His two favorite writers, this will blow you away, John Owen and John Gill. On one occasion, Christmas Evans said to uh, Robert Hall, a famous Baptist preacher, oh, he said, I do wish John Gill had written in Welsh. Said Robert Hall, so do I, so that we English would never have to read him. (laughs) For he is a continent of mud. Because things were tough financially, and I don't think we realize how tough things were financially in those days, when I think of how people lived, I'm a millionaire. I'm a millionaire. Here's a man virtually walking everywhere, living in a hovel of a place. Then the church hadn't, there was no industry to bring money in. It was just an agricultural community. Therefore, the only way to really get money to build a chapel or any meeting place was to go around begging. And when I was training for ministry in in Cardiff, we used to have student Sundays. I hated them. Why? Because after having preached, you then had to represent the college and say, please, could you support us? Which for me was a massive problem because it was a liberal college. And how could I stand there going, give money to this liberal college? It's very very embarrassing. And then people would come at the door and slip a check in your hand, give that to the principal. He did this every time he went down South Wales preaching. It was very embarrassing. But it was the only way to come back to North Wales and say, I think I've got enough money to build another chapel. He was a wily old creature. He was preaching on his way down one occasion. And he said, I've heard that in this area there's a lot of sheep stealing going on. 
He said, I want no money from sheep stealers to go in the collection. So if there are any sheep stealers here, refrain when the hat is passed around. Everybody contributed. (laughs) On one occasion, a lady said to him, Bach, that was a wonderful sermon. You're going to have a great reward at the resurrection. He said, that's fine, but what am I going to do till I get there? And furthermore, what about my old white mare? She even won't see the resurrection. Who's going to feed her? So he was a bit of a lad and a bit of kind of uh, a character. In those days, they had great preaching occasions where people would come together for two days, three days, to hear people expound the word of God. And uh, in 1794, there was a big preaching occasion down in Llanetli. And he was booked as the third preacher. He'd never done it in his life before. That's why he was number three. Get the big ones on first, and then the lesser ones, and then the unknown at the end. So he was number three. The first two could have talked a glass eye to sleep. There was nothing in them at all. And people were lying out on the grass going, this is weary. Up got Christmas Evans. Wow. He preached on the parable of the prodigal. He set the place of life. People who were just lying around saying, what on earth is this? He preached with power, with magnetism, and with unction. Everybody loved it, except the clergy. Why? He was showing them up. At the end of one meeting with the clergy to discuss what do we do with this man, one, and by the way, this took place in July, one clergyman said, I hope never to see Christmas in July ever again. <laughs> Throughout his life, he preached at no less than 163 of those gatherings. But never again was he number three. He was always number one. When he was on Anglesey, he seriously fell. Fell into what? He fell into theological error, which blighted his soul. He fell into what is called Sandemanianism. And he admitted for five years, it was like a ring of ice came round my heart, and I was cold to the things of God. What is Sandemanianism? Well, it came from Scotland. And in those days, it was known as that cold blast from the north. Now, these days, we think of Nicola Sturgeon when we think of that expression, don't we? <laughs> cold blast from the north. But in those days, Nicola wasn't around. But, uh, but it was Sandemanianism. Sandemanianism came from just outside Dundee. There was a man called John Glass, who was a, a gentleman. Uh, a very kind of polite man. He was a pastor. He had 15 children. One of his sons was murdered. That would be an interesting impact on your ministry. But he began to ask one or two questions about people in his congregation, wondering why people could come to church year in, year out, but there'd be no real change in them. And if you've ever done any pastoral work, you've probably asked the same questions. How come Christian people, so-called, can sit through all this, but we never seem to see any change. Maybe they are converted, but there's no emotion there. Well, one of his children married a man called Robert Sandiman, who was in the congregation. If John Glass was a gentleman, Robert Sandiman was a bulldog. And he took hold of what John Glass said. 
and, and rammed it to the nth degree. A bit like what some people have done with John Calvin. They've taken out of what Calvin has said and gone far beyond Calvin. Well, the same with, with John Glass. His son-in-law was a brute. And, and basically, he devised a theory of Christianity, which is, as long as you give people the facts and they go, yeah, I believe in that, they're saved. Forget emotion. That may come, it may not come, but there's no real place for emotion in the Christian life. So don't get too stressed if you preach week after week and people sit there and there's not really much of an expression. They do believe, but don't put your hope in their emotion because that's not where it should lie. Robert Sandeman said people like Isaac Watts, Philip Doddridge, Thomas Boston, terrible people. John Wesley, oh, the scourge of the church. And as for George Whitfield, oh no, he preaches a felt Christ. We don't need that. We need facts about Christ, not a felt Christ. And sadly, many people bought into this kind of thinking. And so did Christmas Evans. It was certainly popular in Yorkshire. Scotland, London, and also North Wales. And when we looked at Benjamin Ingham several years ago, Sandemanism blew apart all the work of Benjamin Ingham. Very, very sad. Christmas Evans brought into this. He admitted for five years, it blew my churches apart. I didn't have any warmth preaching the gospel. And my congregations died before my very eyes. Is Sandemanism dead? No, it isn't. It's very much alive today. And I see it as a pastor of people. I say to myself, if we are those who really have the things of grace, I'd expect a little bit more emotion. There's a world of difference between emotion and emotionalism. But Joseph Hart was right. True religion's more than notion. Something must be felt and known. What is it the psalmist says? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And when you face people week after week, month after month, year after year, who never open their mouth, even though they sit through the preaching of the gospel and say they believe it, as a pastor you think to yourself, I wonder if they really do believe it. Or is it just a thing they're buying into? You can understand where it came from. And friends... We have to have passion in what we do and in what we say because the Lord Jesus, when he comes into our life, he certainly touches our heart. The man who dealt with it best was Andrew Fuller. I like Andrew Fuller. (laughs) How about this? He wrote a paper addressing Robert Sanderman, 12 Letters to a Friend. I tell you, by the time he finished, they were not friends. (laughs) But he dealt with Sandeman as his generation. Thomas Jones of Denby was preaching so powerfully. And Christmas Evans was sat in the congregation. And he suddenly realized, Lord, I've lost that. I've lost it. What that man preached, I once had. But it's gone. Remember William Cooper? Where is the blessedness I knew? When first I saw the Lord. Where is that soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? God was staring him up. He was preaching in South Wales. As he was walking over Cataridris in mid Wales, 
He said, for three hours, I begged God to melt my icy heart, to get this nonsense out of my heart. He said, God broke me on Kata Idris. And every time I see Kata Idris, I always look and think, boy, that's where it happened. And I love the way he spoke. He said, when I look back over those five years, I was as dry as Gilboa. Don't you love those expressions? No, you don't. Well, I like them anyway. Dry as Gilboa. It's biblical. You get it from the book of Samuel. A very, very dry place. When he came back to Anglesey after preaching in South Wales and God melting him, souls began to roll in. And within a short period of time, they had clocked up 600. Wow. Things were happening. He started off with 10 churches. He now had 20 churches. People being converted on a regular basis. One of the hardest things to do is to let go of a word that you started. Most of us have not been in that position. But when a thing starts to really grow and flourish, it's hard to take your hands off and to trust other people. And so while he was away preaching here and everywhere, trying to get money for the churches, their churches said, we need a pastor. We can't rely on him. He's not back for another six months. Let's make our own pastor. Let's appoint one. So every time he came back to Anglesey, the work that he'd initiated, he suddenly found being run by people he wasn't too sure about. And after a while, it was a kind of, and who are you? Where have you been for seven months? We've heard about you, but you're never here. Yeah, I'm preaching in South Wales to get money to build a chapel for you to preach in. He had a terrible time, but he persevered preaching there down in South Wales and then going back to Anglesey on a regular basis. Throughout his entire life, when he was pastoring in, in, in Anglesey, seven of those years were on the road. And he calculated, he preached 3,000 hours in seven years. Now, before you go to sleep tonight, you just pull out your calculator and you work that out. The thing to do in those days was to go to America. The number of Welsh people who left and went to America, he was tempted. Boy, haven't we all been tempted to go to some spiritual America? More money, less hassle. Oh, for the wings of a dove. Oh, for a wayside cottage. And then he realized, no, no, I'd be going for the wrong reason. So I'm going to stay here. And so he stayed. The day before his 34th wedding anniversary, his wife at the age of 57 died. And you'll see pictures of her grave. She's buried outside the chapel there in Llangevny. He was absolutely devastated. Obviously, he was low, so low that he himself picked up a virus, and for nine months he didn't preach. And it was touch and go whether he lost eyesight in his other eye, making him totally blind, and whether he actually died. And after nine months of not preaching, and most of that time just led in bed, thinking this is the end of my life, he gradually got more power. And when he came back to the churches of Anglesey, they were so cold to him that he said, I have to leave you. And then it was, oh, why are you leaving us? We love you. Well, you didn't show that. And here's a man who pioneered, who preached, who prayed, who pastored, who persevered, who paid 
from many of the chapels, not from his own pocket, from his own preaching, to establish a cause, and then when he's down, the church walks all over him. And then when he recovers, he feels so unwelcome that he has to say, I think it's time I left you. So he handed in his resignation, and he traveled to South Wales, where he then finished up pastoring a church of 65 members in Caerphilly. Bit of a come down, isn't it? The church in Caerphilly couldn't believe that probably their greatest Baptist preacher would come to be their pastor. You can imagine they were like bees around a honeypot. Folk came in their hundreds to hear him. He had the shock of his life preaching three times a week to the same people. And then he said, I want a wife. I want a wife. But not a South Walesian. Oh, no, no, no. I want a North Walesian wife. So he said to his friend, there's a maid who attends a church that I pastored. Do me a favor. Take her a horse and ask her will she marry me. He was 61. She was 35. We live in hope, don't we? <laughs> the minister friend went up with these two horses. He was riding one. Persuaded her. So came back with her on the other horse and they got married. Guess where they got married? Eglusillon. Well, that's where George Whitfield got married as well. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere, just outside Caerphilly. They were so happily married, but then the marriage only lasted 11 years and he died. And when he died, C.H. Spurgeon was so impressed with what this man had done for the gospel in Wales he said, I'm going to fight for his widow to have a pension as long as she lives, that she may live in comfort. While he was traveling over Kafiri Mountain one day, God met him. There are probably three occasions in his life where God really met him. Alexander McLaren speaks about in the life of the believer, as the believer looks back over his or her life, there are altars which are indications where God has dealt with us. God dealt with him when he got up his horse and said, I need the Holy Spirit. I need him. God dealt with him on Cataridris. God dealt with him on Caerphilly Mountain. And there while he was just seeking God, the Spirit of God came down upon him. And every time God met him, he would make a covenant. I don't know if you ever do that with the Lord. It's a dangerous thing to do. But to say, Lord... You've dealt with some important things in my life here. I've got to write these down and promise certain things. The church in Caerphilly loved his preaching but said, we'll run the show, you just preach. After a while, it got a little bit difficult. Why is that? Because the men who are running the church, which sometimes happens, use running the church as an after-work hobby. Many evangelical churches suffer because deacons and elders run the church as an after-work hobby. Which makes it very, very difficult when you're a pastor. And he said, look, I'm not having this. You mean, I'm in my 60s. I'm not playing around with this. You can have my resignation. From Caerphilly, he then went down to Cardiff. If you go into the center of Cardiff, round the Hayes, there's a huge 
Baptist Tabernacle Church. That's where I was validated. It's totally irrelevant, is that? But it means an awful lot to me. And that's where he preached. You think we have trouble today? Think of the church he inherited there. The previous pastor had to leave because he was having an affair with a woman in the congregation. So they dismissed him, but he said, I think I'd still like to carry on coming to the church with, with my lady. So every time Christmas Evans got up to preach, because the deacons were weak, there was the ex-pastor and his lady on the side sitting, looking him in the face. Unbelievable goings on in those days. He only stayed there for 30 months. He couldn't cope with it. He was crippling him. But during that time, no less than 80 people came to faith in Christ. What do I do? I'm an old man. I'm worn out. Lord, a bit like Samson, just give me one more moment. An opening came in North Wales in Carnarvon. Casalam Baptist Carnarvon. It's still there. And to my understanding, there are people in the Welsh language there today preaching the gospel. If you go into the chapel, his pulpit is there. You'll see it on the photograph board. The nearest thing I have to PowerPoint. And his picture is on the front of the chapel carved in wood. In front of the pulpit carved in wood. Again, wow. Christmas Evans has come back to North Wales. People came in their hundreds. And then suddenly it all dropped. And he finished his days just pastoring a fairly small congregation. But expounding the scriptures and pointing people to the Lord Jesus. I don't know why, but it happened in those days. People built chapels they couldn't afford. When he went there, the chapel owed £800. During his short time there, he cut the deficit to £400 because more people came and put more in the box. But then the man who was owed £400 said, here's the deadline, I want it. So what could he do? There's a man in his 70s, he got on his horse, took his wife, and went down to South Wales, preaching, trying to raise money to clear the £400 debt. He came to Swansea, and his final sermon was in Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, which is still there, on the Kingsway in Swansea. As he came down the pulpit, having preached in English, he was heard muttering to himself, this is the last time I'll ever preach. And he was right. Don't ever say that, by the way. <laughs> that night he took ill. And the doctor was called and he told him, you're dying. That's quite a sobering thing, isn't it? You're led there and the doctor says, you are dying. He called a few friends round. How about this as a final exit? He called a few friends round in Swansea as they gathered round this dying man's bed. He's just 73 years of age. He said, gentlemen, I have never labored without blood in the basin. Meaning, I have never ever preached without mentioning Christ crucified. Never. That's a great message for us, isn't it? It's our only message. And secondly, as he was dying, I love this, he opened his one eye and said, 
Drive on, coachman. Drive on. He was gone. There he is, buried behind the railway station. What can I say about him in conclusion? How about this? Here's a man born into a very poor family. His father died when he was nine. He slept with cows for four years. He comes to England and gets his eye punched out. He lived with a sense of spiritual inferiority for a huge chunk of his life. He poured his entire life into raising the gospel cause in Anglesey only for the very churches he'd founded to walk all over him. He lives in a hovel, never takes any money for himself, never given a pay rise in 17 years, spends a lot of his life, seven years to be honest, on the road, either walking or on a horse, preaching for money to help the gospel cause. He then gets caught up in Sandemanianism, which wrecks a lot of the stuff he's already built up. Then he faces stroppy deacons in Caerphilly and in Cardiff. Spends his life arguing with young men who think they know better than him, but can do nothing to add folk into the kingdom of God. And then he's got his own bodily appearance. Most folks said he wore his clothes as if they were thrown on with a pitchfork. But wouldn't you if you kind of walked everywhere or rode on a horse? Oh, and listen to this about his medication. I mean, how can he treat the pain in his eye? He used to take any medication that was going to ease the pain in his eye. He often took opium and laudanum, and one friend was shocked at the range of his medication he took, which by our standards must have been primitive, hit and miss. One man said that all the medical concoctions he took, quote, had no more effect on him than if they had been dropped into an elephant's bowels. In simple English, he had the constitution of an ox. He said, gentlemen, let me give you some advice. When you preach, make sure that the glass is clean. The cleaner the glass, the brighter the light will shine through it. He said, what is preaching? I love this. He said, preaching is a man worshipping God. And as you preach, and people see you caught up with God, they are caught up with the worship, and likewise want to worship him. That, to me, is a perfect definition of what preaching is. Preaching is a man worshipping God and folks saying, I want to join in. Hence the reason why when we go into our pulpits, we don't go up into the pulpit. We come down from being in God's presence all week. And having lived in the presence of God, we then say to our people, come with me while I worship God. Join with me that we may then go out and say, wow, what an amazing God we have. To me, that's what preaching is all about. Not facts, not figures, but bringing people with you into the very presence of God. And I guess if you spend half your life walking around Wales and riding on the back of a horse, 
you've got plenty of time to be right with the Lord. I call Christmas Evans that incredible spiritual cyclops. I've been in Christian work for most of my life. Boy, is it tough. Am I right? Boy, it's a tough world. And when you're married, you have to bring your wife on the tough journey with you. It's even tougher. But I would say to you, from the bottom of my heart, what Christmas Evans said to his people in Swansea, drive on. Drive on. Why? We serve a wonderful God. And the angels in heaven, envious, speaking about Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I know he's been in your presence now for over 200 years. But Lord, what a real man he was. I find it so humbling to think that before I was born, my grandparents were born, my great-grandparents were born, there were men and women around this country flying the flag for Jesus. Ordinary people, people with physical disabilities, people with psychological handicaps, but you took hold of them and you blew through them and you used them for the glory of your name. It gives us plenty of hope. Father, because not one of us is perfect. And we ask and pray, Lord, as you met with Christmas Evans on those several occasions, oh, Lord, we long for you to meet with us, to refresh us, to anoint us, and to inspire us. And, Father, if there's anyone here who's thinking of getting off the coach, then, Father, remind them, drive on. Drive on. Father, thank you for Christmas, Evans. Thank you that one day we're going to see him with two eyes. How amazing a man with one eye saw far more than most people do with two eyes. Oh, Father, as we spend our life in communicating, help us to put eyes into people's ears. And as we speak, May our speaking not be cold and perfunctory, but may it be an act of worship that people can join in the worship and say, Oh, hail the Lamb, enthroned on high. Father, take hold of these words. If they can be of any good, please use them for the glory of your precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.